guys bow your heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the words that we just sang. Here we are to worship, to respond to who you are with our attention right now as we hear your word. Here we are to bow down. Lord, I pray none of us are prostrate physically, but I pray that the posture of our hearts right now would be unified in bowing before the maker of the universe and the Lord of our hearts. I pray that our hearts would all say, yes, you are worthy. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of every breath that we have to be breathed for you. You are worthy. You are the maker of everything. You are the Lord of everything. And you are the redeemer of your people. You have rescued us from sin. You have opened our eyes to see the foolishness of living for ourselves, for selfishness. And you have helped us see the king in his beauty. And I pray that we would be able to say that as we just sang it, that we would say it with our hearts. You're altogether lovely. You're altogether wonderful to me. Lord, I pray right now that you be with my words. Help me to be clear as we look at your word for us from your servant, Paul. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Paul, the Apostle's letter. The word Apostle means a sent one. Paul is sent by God, by the risen Christ, commissioned with a job to start Jesus communities, followers of Jesus all over the Gentile world. And he started one in the ancient city of Corinth, which was part of the Roman Empire. We have a Corinth, New York. Um, but this was Corinth in the Roman Empire, and they had a Jesus community in Corinth, followers of Jesus. And they started off well following Jesus, and then they went crazy in so many areas. And so the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, and in the letter he is giving them ten things, ten things, right, that he has heard is wrong with them. Well, first off, there's several things that he's gotten reports of. Okay? And in chapters 1 to 4, that's where we're, we've been the last few months, last couple months, the reports that he got is that they were fighting and squabbling over church leaders, even over Paul, and who followed him, and who followed Apollos, and who followed Peter. Oh, some people pulled the real Trump card out. We follow Christ. We are Jesus people, right? So he's saying, you're, you're fighting about leaders. That's what the focus of this morning is, again, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. But then he's also, in chapter 7, he, he shifts. Not only is he going to start addressing reports he's heard about them, but he shifts to addressing some questions that they asked him about as well. So that's to come um, in our time in Corinthians. So this morning, chapter 4... Paul is still focusing on leadership issues. Now, one of the things that the Corinthians were doing 
in their squabbles about leaders and who followed who as they were casting judgment on church leaders really quickly. Like, they'd hear a message from one leader, and they'd say, well, that guy obviously doesn't have what it takes. Or they'd watch another leader, like Apollos, most likely, and they'd watch him preach, and they'd be like, man, that guy can really bring it. He's so dynamic. He's so professional. He's God's man. And then, in verses and, and then they'd look at somebody like Paul and they'd be like, man, you know, he's not very impressive. He's always in and out of jail. He's been beaten up like the guy looks like he's been through a, you know, meat grinder. Um, he's been, his body's been shredded. I don't know if God really likes him very much. I think we're going to go with this guy. He looks better. He's better. Look, whatever. So they were... Rushing to judgments about church leaders over various things. And so here, Paul is challenging their tendency to do that. He says, don't rush to judge God's servants. They are God's servants. Um, the ESV, English Standard Version, uses the word stewards. We'll talk about that in a minute. God's going to judge them. God will give them their praise and honor on the last day. I want you to think about it this way. In our sermon discussion group before the message, we talked about... Um, this illustration but have you ever been judged by someone while you were doing your job you're, you're doing your job you're carrying out orders and people come up to you and they're like why are you doing that that way and you're like I'm just doing what I was told to do right when I worked on a farm there was a husband and wife that I was working for and one time the husband told me to do a job one way, and so I was doing it, and the wife came out and said, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, he said that. I'm, I'm just trying to please him. And she said, well, that's not pleasing me. And I'm like, so that, that ended up being a, we had a good conversation, a good sit down. Okay, so when he says this and who says that, I think they had to work that out uh, together because I was just caught in the middle of that one, all right? Um, another example of people criticizing someone for just doing their job um, would be uh, when the Department of Public Works guys in Granville, the DPW, cut down all the trees on Main Street. Those of us who lived in Granville remember that fateful day. Um, people rushed to judge them. I remember sitting in the chair looking out the window and I, the guy... Scott, I think it was, Scott Mackey from the Public, part, part, Department of Public Works was cutting down a tree and somebody comes up to him, what are you doing, man? Just following orders. We're just, we're just trying to do our job. We're not, getting, we're not here to give all the reasons. They, they gave a few, but ultimately it was the, the council who gave them their orders. They're, they're stewards. They're carrying out what their bosses told them to do. And even though people were judging them for what they were doing, ultimately the judgment that mattered was the judgment of the, the town council. Did they do a good job with their task or not? Did they get rid of the trees or did they leave branches everywhere? Um, did they keep, did, did they fulfill their task? They didn't get a lot of popularity points that way, that day, but from what I could tell, they did their job. There's no more trees. 
and they got paid. They were faithful. This is similar to what Paul is saying in these verses. Church leaders are working for God, and God will judge them. Be careful not to rush into judgment of church leaders, especially, Paul's going to say, in judging motives of the heart. Now, it's kind of weird for me as a pastor to be preaching. I'm not like, don't judge me. Um, I don't want it to come across as that, because I, I think there is, a, there is a sense which um, we can make judgments about people's behavior and about actions, um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And also, even though this passage is just specifically focused on church leaders, I hope you'll see by the end that I think there's some application for all of us as well. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. If you would, listen along. Paul writes this. He says, This, then, is how you ought to regard us, leaders, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. The ESB will say stewards, caretakers of the mysteries of God. Verse 2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust, that stewards, must, be pro must prove faithful. Verse 3, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court, by the guys on the street. I care very little. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. I, I think I did a good job. But that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So here's the main idea. What is Paul saying? What's the main thing he's trying to say? He's saying this. Christians ought not rush to cast judgment on church leaders because church leaders are God's stewards, they will receive God's judgment, and they are working for God's praise. Three points then for the sermon. And all fall under the banner of not rushing to judge church leaders. First, church leaders are God's stewards. They, they work for God. Second, church leaders will face God's judgment. Very sobering thing. Ultimately, God's judgment matters eternally. And third and finally, church leaders are working for God's praise at the end of the day. God's stewards, God's judgment, God's praise. So if you're taking notes, those three things. God's stewards, God's judgment, God's praise. Point one, God's stewards. We see this in chapter one, er, in verse one of chapter four this morning. Um, though not in the NIV translation. Uh, so I'll just read the ESV, which is really similar, communicates the same thing, just uses the word steward, which I want to draw attention to. Um, so in the ESV it says, this is how one should regard us, leaders, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is a, not like a stewardess on an airplane, but it, in this sense, it's, a, it's like a butler, a household manager. It's someone who's been put in charge of something that belongs ultimately to another. In this case, the thing that church leaders like Paul have been put in charge of taking care of, of, of stewarding, 
is the mysteries of God. These mysteries that we talked about a few weeks ago, they're not mysteries anymore, but the truths about God and about Jesus that God has revealed. And those of you um, who have heard some of those sermons may remember this language of a mystery that's now revealed comes from the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that Daniel, it's, it's a mystery, and Daniel receives the meaning of the dream from God, and the mystery is revealed. And there's a phrase there, it says, there, Daniel says to the king, oh king, I can't tell you the dream. I can't tell you the interpretation. And you see the king, like, what? And he says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And in that dream, the mystery that's revealed ultimately is the mystery about Jesus. That he is going to be like a stone that comes from heaven and that defeats the kingdoms of the world and that grows into a great mountain, a stone that fills the earth with the kingdom of God. And this is an image that's unpacked more in Daniel chapter 7, that after this stone has descended and begun God's kingdom, he's going to ascend into the clouds like a son of Adam. Ascending through the clouds and receive all authority over heaven and earth and rule forever and ever. And so Daniel and in Daniel 9, we find out that this Messiah figure was died for the sins of his people. He's cut off, though not for himself. And he makes atonement, forgiveness for his people. So again, Daniel is the thing that Paul has in mind when he said, we are stewards of the mysteries that aren't secret anymore. God has revealed them. What are these mysteries? Jesus is king. Jesus is enthroned. Jesus isn't dead. He rose. Jesus reigned. Jesus died for you and rose again. Paul's going to summarize the mysteries in 1 Corinthians 15 at the end of his letter, where he says, I made known to you what was entrusted to me. Right? Um, the gospel First importance, Christ died for sinners, rose again for sinners on the third day. This is a, he is a steward. Here's a couple things this means about how we should think about church leaders, about my role as a, as a pastor at this church, or Carl's role as, on our pastoral team as an elder, or any church leader for, for Maggie and Ben teaching Kids Bible Club this morning, teaching them. They are stewards, stewards, leading a Bible study. The job of a leader in any area is not ultimately to be clever and creative. It's to be clear and faithful. You can even see that in verse 2. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. This is a huge problem in Corinth, where speakers were judged solely on the basis of how good their performances were were. Tons of thought then was put into the most clever and creative and innovative and impressive ways to say things. If your message as a speaker in ancient Corinth, I'm not talking about a Christian speaker, although that became a problem because the church started copying the world, but people would roll into town, they were called sophists, these wise speakers, with their big entourage of disciples and impressive clothing. And man, they were fit. They worked out. They were buff. They looked good. Not like the Apostle Paul who was, you know, when you get beat up and shipwrecked and jailed, you don't look very impressive. And when you live 
you know, you know, he's not dressed up in the styles of the day. He's, you know, dressed up like a Jewish rabbi, and he rolls into town with people, not his disciples, who uh, follow him as like, oh, how great is Paul? No, he's, he's got, you know, brother so-and-so, and brother so-and-so. Oh, look, this guy is, he calls him a brother, but he's a slave. Um, this guy he calls a sister. Right? What's going on here with this Jesus community? It's totally different than the world thinks. But these communicators would come into town, and, and they weren't like Paul. They would set out to be clever and to be creative. They would try to impress the crowds with their message. They didn't view themselves as stewards entrusted with a message. No, they would lick their fingers and test the wind and say, what do the people want to hear today? What's going to get this crowd really going so that they really like me? And they're like, man, how much do I have to pay you so that my son can go to your school? How much? You know, I was like, well, what's the going rate? You know, 50 bucks an hour? Well, I'm better than everybody else, so 75. I mean, that's, that's what was going on in Corinth. And so it was really affecting the way that they thought about their church leaders. Now, um, I want to say something clear here, make something clear. There's nothing wrong with saying things or teaching things in a, in a clever way or a creative way, a fresh way. It's not inherently wrong. But that's not the ultimate job of a Christian pastor, church leader, teacher in any sphere, Bible study leader, a parent trying to communicate the truth about Jesus to their kids. A steward has been entrusted with a message, someone else's message. It's God's message. And his job isn't to spruce it up with clever words or reinvent it to mean something else or make it sound better to people. The steward's job is to be faithful, to communicate it clearly and accurately to those to hear it. And if the content of what is said is offensive and a big turnoff, the steward shouldn't be bent out of shape as if people are rejecting him. It's God's message. If people don't like what God has to say to them about Jesus and about their need for him, and nobody likes to be told that they're a sinner, they are in rebellion against God. That they're prideful. That they need his forgiveness. They need to humble themselves and receive the free gift of grace if they want to spend eternity with King Jesus. That's not a popular message. It's a true message. And the steward must be faithful to communicate clearly and faithfully, not with great fanfare. This doesn't just have implications for preachers, right? When you tell somebody about Jesus, a friend, family member, your job is to be faithful to what God has said about Jesus, to get it right, to make it clear, to try to help someone understand, to maybe answer some of their objections from God's word. Your job's not to try to say things in an impressive, polished way that wows them. Every time I've shared the good news about Jesus with someone personally, 
I, I don't think I've ever walked away thinking, man, I really sounded great. I sounded so clever, so convincing. It, it's, they're going to follow Jesus because I was just all that, right? Usually, I walk away thinking, oh man, I, why didn't I think of that? Or I could have said that. But friends, one of the things that's helped me is, is was I clear about Jesus and about my need for him? And about all of our need for him? That's the goal. We want to be clear about Jesus. The conversation could go to this or that. The conversations tend to go all over the place when you're talking about Jesus. Our job is to keep bringing it back to the identity of Jesus. If Jesus is who he said he was, if he is the Son of God, if he is the King before whom every knee will one day bow, then our job is not to you know, try to be clever, but just to be clear about who he is. That's the goal. So church leaders are God's stewards. All Christians are really stewards of the truths about Jesus. But in context, Paul's focusing on church leaders. And because church leaders are stewards, people who hear them must be really careful not to rush to judge the styles and mannerisms and methods of communication that they use. They ought to ask, are they faithful in communicating the message about Jesus? Because that's something ultimately God's going to judge them for, as well as for their motives in preaching, something that no human can fully know. And that's the next thing we'll see in this passage, God's judgment. Listen to verses 3 to 5. Paul says this, I care very little if I'm judged by you guys, you Corinthians. I don't care a lot if you Corinthians are saying, oh, Paul, he's not very impressive. I don't care, or even any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, here's his conclusion, judge nothing before the appointed time. What time is that? Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So, again, in Corinth, which is the background for everything Paul's saying, people are rushing to make judgments about church leaders based off things that didn't really matter at the end of the day. They weren't worried about whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the other leaders were being faithful stewards about the truths of Jesus. They were more worried about judging them based off of how much they liked their styles of preaching, their personality, how much money they had, how many followers they had. And they were particularly, as I keep saying, they were particularly unimpressed with Paul's style. And we'll see that in 2 Corinthians down the road, because Paul really gets into it there. Paul was not impressive. His lectures about Jesus that relied heavily on countless Old Testament prophecies and texts put a young man to sleep one night in a window, Eutychus, who will be forever remembered as 
the patron saint of those who fall asleep during sermons, right? <laughs> Eutychus fell asleep and fell out of a window, was picked up dead, and it was an opportunity for God to show him grace and to amaze this community of Jesus followers because Paul, by the power of the Spirit, brought this young man back to life. The amazement of the church to their encouragement in the gospel. They remembered that sermon, right? The God of resurrection showed up. So Paul was not dynamic in any of the ways that the Corinthians looked for. And yet his words were clear and his teaching brilliant. But it was totally different than what the Corinthians were used to. And so they rushed to judge Paul. Maybe they said he's lazy. Uneducated. You really should read a primer on how to impress Greek people. Right? Or he's unimpressive. Bad things keep happening to him. Get put in jail. He's got. He's, he can't be God's man. Would God really let his poor, his servant go through that? And Paul says, "I I don't care much whether you judge me." And then Paul says something interesting. He says, "I don't even judge myself." Verse four. My conscience is clear. That What that means is Paul isn't aware of any area in his life that he's in active rebellion against God. I'm not living a double life, says Paul. My conscience is clear. What you see is what you get. And yet, he says, that doesn't mean he's innocent. Just because you look at your life and you give yourself a pass doesn't mean you're innocent in the Lord's eyes. As Paul says, it is the Lord who judges me. Pastors, teachers, and all of us will ultimately be judged by the Lord. We ought not rush into human judgment of people who are serving Jesus based off of what our eyes see and based off of human wisdom. We can't see the heart. We can't see motives. Only God sees. And ultimately, it's God who will judge his servants with regard to how they serve him. Which is, of course, a very sobering thing for me as a church leader. God is my judge. We don't say that in a flippant way. Don't judge me. God judges me. No, this is a serious thing. At the end of the day, we will stand before the Lord. We all will, and give an account of the deeds done in this flesh. This doesn't mean Christians ought not make any judgments about things. I'll say that again. This does not mean, what Paul's saying here does not mean that Christians should not make judgments about things. That's what chapter 5 in the letter is all about. <coughs> chapter 5 there is a man living in gross sexual sin, and the church is like cool with it. And he's the talk of the town. There's everybody's shocked about what this guy's doing. And Paul says, You need to make a judgment about that. You need to bring this guy before the assembly and bring him out of your midst. So that there may be hope for him. He thinks God's cool with what I'm doing because the church is cool with what I'm doing. No, you mean to make it clear 
Jesus is not okay with the way you live. You're not living in a way that represents him. You're bringing dishonor to his name. And so the, the deeds of his life are very clearly in the wrong. And the church can make judgments about that. We're not called to judge people outside of us. They're, they don't know the Lord. The church is always judging people that are outside of them. No, our job is to focus on our people. How are we living? Are we living in a way that pleases the Lord? That's chapter 5, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Another area that Christians are supposed to judge, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to learn that there are teachers in the church that are teaching that Jesus did not actually rise bodily from the dead. Well, they're, specifically, they're teaching that Christians don't rise from the dead. And therefore, Jesus didn't rise bodily from the dead. And so, Paul is saying, you need to make a judgment about that. That's wrong. Okay, so, Paul isn't saying, never judge the content of a church leader's message. He's saying, if the steward is preaching the message about Jesus, and he's preaching it truly, be careful not to judge the motives of the heart. The motives of various teachers who are teaching the same message about Christ, yet with different styles and different effects. The day will bring everything to light. What is that day? It's the day that Jesus returns. The day when he tests the quality of each one's work, which we saw earlier in chapter 3. And the motives of the heart. God is judged, so wait for his judgment. This is the case with pastors. It's also the case with all believers. Have you ever been hurt by someone? Think about this. Have you ever been hurt by someone who doesn't feel like they did anything wrong? Maybe it's something that, especially something, not something clear. I'm not talking like, you know, they murdered your best friend and don't feel like they did anything wrong, right? No. Have you ever been like hurt by somebody? Maybe they dropped the ball on something. They didn't do something that you, they let you down. They weren't there for you. And you've been deeply hurt. But they, their conscience is clear. You approached them about it and they said, you know what, I, I, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I, I just couldn't be there for you in that way. I don't feel like I let you down. Or maybe someone says, um, you know, that you hurt them. You hurt me, right? And, and, and you let them down, right? So you can say with Paul, my conscience is clear. Friends, even a clean conscience does not necessarily mean we're 100% innocent. Right? So even if you say, well, um, I, I don't think I hurt you, or your friend who really hurt you says, well, I don't think I hurt you intentionally, I don't think I'm in the wrong, even because we think our consciences aren't condemning us. Our internal sense of being right and wrong, our inner courtroom doesn't judge us. We can be misguided. A clean conscience doesn't necessarily mean a clean heart. And knowing this can be really helpful, I think, in overcoming conflict in relationships. When someone really hurts you, but just doesn't see it, maybe they just don't look at things the same way as you. Maybe they prayed about it, and they feel like, yeah, before God, my conscience is clear. 
then it helps, I think, to know that you don't have to judge them and punish them by avoiding them or speaking unkindly to them. God is their judge, and he is your judge, too. When Jesus returns, even clean consciences will be sorted out. I don't think I did anything wrong. Wait till the Lord comes. He will sort it out on that day. The same thing, right, is true whether for people that have hurt us or for people that we've hurt. It will be sorted out on the great day. And on that day, for those who have done what is right, we will receive our praise from God. That's the final thing that you can see in these verses. God's praise shows up in verse 5, the last and final point. Praise. The praise of God is ultimately what church leaders and really all Christians everywhere are living for. We ought to be living for the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Verse 5, Paul says, Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. A motive is the heart's reason for doing something. Okay? And only God ultimately knows the why behind each human's behavior. For example, you might look at a church leader and think, Man, isn't he the nicest guy ever? He's always willing to give the shirt off his back for anyone. And yet, on the final day, when the day brings everything to light, in God's courtroom, you might find that all that niceness was actually a means of control. Controlling people. Getting people to do what he wanted them to do. And say what he wanted them to say because he was nice. Or you might look at another leader. I'm not just thinking pastors. This applies to anything. And you say, man, that guy is an arrogant jerk. He's always blunt and so forceful about what he thinks. And then on the last day, in heaven's courtroom, you find out, wow, he really loved people. And he just didn't want people to be hurt by what he saw to be foolish ways of thinking and living. And maybe because of his own upbringing and background, he just struggled to learn how to communicate concern in a more effective way. <laughs> like the dad who screams at the kid in danger, don't do that! <laughs> Only to make the kid so scared he runs faster towards what he's doing. Right? It's like, well, love is the motive. Maybe we got to work on the methods a little bit. God knows the heart. We've got to be careful not to judge motives. God will bring everything to light on the last day. That's not to say that we can't be wise towards potentially dangerous motives. Right? You can recognize grooming behavior in a predator and say, um, I don't know for sure the motive is the heart, but um, that will be revealed on the last day, but you're not going to be alone with my kids. This, this is not... There's many other places in the Bible where we could draw in that kind of wisdom. All right? What Paul is saying is don't rush to judge motives 
based on external appearance, wait for the Lord to come. So, here's some last applications. Let's not form our judgments about people and about the institutions that people create based on appearances. Right? Just because someone has money doesn't mean they're corrupt or that they think they're better than others or that they just don't understand the life of the working man. If you only knew what it was like to not have money, then you would understand my life. And just because someone doesn't have money doesn't mean they're lazy, right? Just because somebody's rich doesn't mean they have happiness or their life's all together. Appearances can be so deceiving. Jesus looked at the rich young man and he loved him. Right? He had compassion for him. He saw through the external appearances of everything put together and saw a man in need of Jesus. Another thing to be careful of. Don't be impressed by polished, well-spoken teachers and communicators that look sound like, wow, man, that, they're really, really um, impressive in the way they're communicating that. What is the content of what they're saying? Movies can be very powerful with this. You ever seen a beautiful, beautiful movie with a hauntingly dark message? What is the content? The movie can leave you just over, utterly impressed by the beauty of what's being portrayed in one sense, but the, the content, man, it's, it's dark. So, we want to look at the message of leaders. Are they focusing on Jesus, on his death and resurrection? Are they preaching the message of the cross as the only hope for sinners? Or does their teaching just sound like the world's path? to success. Look through the external appearances. Look at the content of the message. Another thing we've got to be careful to do, not to do, is not to bring judgment to bear in our minds and hearts against someone based upon just a snippet of their life that we observe. You might see someone say or do some really prideful things over the course of a few days and rush to the conclusion they're just a prideful, arrogant jerk of a person. Remember, in that moment, God sees and knows the end from the beginning. In two weeks, they might be crying out to the Lord for mercy, that he might humble them. God sees the whole. Wait for the day to bring everything to life. Has anyone ever caught you at a bad moment? At your worst. In that moment, what do you want to do? Hide, right? You don't need to. The day will bring everything to light. When Jesus appears, everything will be seen and known. The hearts of men will be laid bare. God will sort through our sincere efforts to love others and do what's honoring to him that just came off wrong. And he will sort through what we did just to impress and control and manipulate other people. Christians, we must live for the eye of God. 
He will bring all to life. That's the final thing I want to leave you with. Make it your aim, Christian, to please the Father. Work in all you do. Waking up and going to sleep and everything in between, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to feel his smile. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, we make it our we make it our aim to please him. Have you ever really wanted to make someone happy? The beautiful thing about our Heavenly Father is that we actually can make our Creator pleased with us. We can please the Father. When we show forgiveness and kindness to others because we remember how much Jesus showed forgiveness and kindness to us, this pleases the Father. When we speak gently to people who have raged against us and cussed us out, we can remember how gentle Jesus is with us in our sin. And this pleases the Father. We respond gently to those who have hurt us. When we treat others the way we would want to be treated, this pleases our Father. When you do your absolute best on something, and only God sees it, you did your best, this pleases the Father. And when you really blow it, and you just utterly made a royal mess of the last five minutes or the last five years, and you finally come to your senses, the Father is not in heaven holding a club waiting to whomp you, He's like the father in the prodigal son story. He's running to embrace you. Turning to the father always pleases the father. No matter how dark the pit you've been in that you turn to him from, when you turn your face to him and call to him, he hears you. He's a good daddy. What daddy would not respond to their child that calls for help? He will run. There may be consequences for coming to the light. But there will always be the Father's smile. And when you're faithful to steward the gospel about Jesus and just tell them about tell someone about Jesus, this pleases the Father. And over it all, pleasing the Father is summed up in this. Love and live like Jesus, because Jesus perfectly pleased the Father while he was on earth. He is our ultimate example of what pleases God in human. And the goal of Jesus in saving us from our sin and rebellion is to make us fully human once again, to restore us to the position where we are faithful sons and daughters the king and to populate the new creation that is coming with humans who live and love like God himself this is his aim in saving us so three things we've seen today pastors are God's stewards and all of us really are stewards of God second thing God is judge and so because of that live to please the father let's pray Lord I pray that you would help us 
to make it our aim to please you. I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in our hearts a longing to live for your smile. Lord, for those of us who have turned to Christ, we know we have your love. You love us. We also know we can grieve you. I pray, Lord, that we would turn from our sins, that we would run into your open arms. Help us this week to experience the joy of knowing you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.